You're listening to The Human Factor from Inc. Magazine. I'm Eric Schoenberg, the CEO of Inc. and Fast Company. Some entrepreneurs launch a business in order to upset an industry. Today's guest started her businesses to overturn a mindset. Phyllis Newhouse is the founder and CEO of, among other companies, Extreme Solutions, Inc., which helps organizations, including the U.S. Department of Defense and State Department, combat cybersecurity threats. Phyllis built her knowledge in this field during 22 years in the Army, where she was tapped by the late General Colin Powell to stand up a new cyber espionage command, essentially to build an infrastructure linking security communications across the entire military. She founded Extreme on leaving the service, a black woman at the helm of a tech company with now 6,500 employees spread over 42 states. That's busting a lot of barriers, but there's more. She's also the founder and CEO of Shoulder Up, a nonprofit designed to help women entrepreneurs, and the CEO of Two SPACs, the publicly traded special purpose acquisition companies that are all the rage on Wall Street today. That makes her one of very few black women to take public not one, but soon two corporations. Phyllis is a woman on a mission, and it's great to have her on The Human Factor. Welcome, Phyllis Newhouse. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Eric, today. Yeah, well, thanks for being here. Now, you grew up in a family of modest means, the youngest girl of 11 children. It's not exactly a straight shot from there to the head of a SPAC and, and the head of a, a major government contract corporation in the tech field. So let's unpack that a little bit. Um, what was it like growing up, Phyllis? And, and how did that create the foundation for the leader you are today? Well, you know, Eric, growing up with a family, in a family of 11 kids, there were seven girls, four boys, my mom and dad, um, you know, you know, my father, I say, was a disciplinary and, you know, my mother was the nurturer and she was a talent manager. And I often always say that, you know, my mother was the first CEO I've ever met, because if you think about managing a household with 11 children, and by the way, um, there was 11 of us, but my, there were also eight other kids in the home. Uh, my mother also, after her mother passed, she brought in and raised her seven children as well. So, so it wasn't just 11 of us. And so, uh, you know, growing up, I mean, you know, we had some clearly defined rules in the home with a father, you know, who believed in discipline, but, but also to, um, you know, he believed in um, really identifying, you know, talent. And he, he was um, really very instrumental in who I, I believe I'm becoming a great leader. My father used to always say, you know, you're going to be a great leader one day. You're going to be a warrior. You're my you're my little soldier. And so if you if you have those type of seeds sown in your life very early, you end up finding that oh, I must be a warrior. My father's told me so I must be. I must be a great leader. And so uh, so early on, my parents was very instrumental in helping us. Each one of us understand our value card. We used to have to come to the dinner table, Eric, and this is so funny today when I think back on this and how that really has impacted my life as a leader and teams that I've built. My father used to say every, every, every time we would have dinner, he says, what's your value card? And, and no one could have the same value card at the table. And I used, and I used to say, well, my value card is leadership. And another person would say, my value card is I'm a great listener. And whatever that was, 
He always wanted us to realize that we all brought value to a family and not everyone was going to bring the same thing. And so when I transitioned into the military, a lot of my foundation and, and, the, and the lessons that I had as a child, I was able to use a lot of that just in the military alone. And so growing up, I tell people today, it was a blessing being in a family with so many kids, but from modest means not, and not coming from a lot of money. And I go, I, and, you know, when I had, you know, my older siblings, um, they were some of the first African-American students to go to, you know, North Carolina State, UNC Chapel Hill. There were some of the first black students. And so I came along. And so failure just wasn't an option for me after having so many siblings that have been the first to do something, the first to go to, you know, an Ivy League university and those sort of things. So so it really, I, I think, you know, you know, I come from humble beginnings and I say that and I'm, and I'm so grateful for what we didn't have, but everything we did have. That's a wonderful story. Value cards. I've, I've got to remember that. That is great. Um, sounds like a <laughs> sounds like a great dad. Now you then spent 20 years in the army. It must have really um, you must have really found something there. What what was it? You know, um, I, when I joined the military and. Um, one of the one of the things I really liked about the military is it was the t it was you know the opportunity to lead and build teams. Now remember, I came from a father who said, "You are a warrior, you're a soldier, you're a leader, and you're going to be a great leader one day." And so, going into the military really gave me an opportunity to see. You know, I came I came in the military during an era when um, you know women were just starting to get the non traditional roles in the military, and the first time I ever saw. I remember going to Pope Air Force Base in North Carolina, and my sister was in the Air Force at the time. And I remember going to the uh, Air Force Base and seeing women pilots come off the flight line in jumpsuits. I had no idea why they all had on the same jumpsuit. I just thought it was pretty cool. And I said to my sister, oh my God, they all are wearing the same jumpsuit. She said, they're pilots. I said, you mean they actually fly the plane? And, and that was my first moment into that empowered me to go into the military was seeing those women Air Force um, pilots. And then when I went into the military, I realized that there um, I saw very few women leaders in, in the top ranks when I first went in. And so that really gave me the desire and it drove me to say, you know, I, you know, I, you can only make change when you're at the top. And, and so I strived to, you know, to be a great leader because I knew that there were a lot of things in the military that needed to change, but you needed somebody who was willing to lead, lead the military through change. And so that's why 22 years, because I saw as I rose to the ranks that, you know, you know, I had to, I had a bigger voice and that voice was needed in order for some things to change in the military. All right. So, um, uh, a person on a mission, even then now, Speaking of non-traditional roles for women, the, the head of the cyber espionage task force that General Powell appointed you to was uh, by the, the very defini definition of a non-traditional role. In fact, I, I think the role didn't even exist until you started it. Tell me what it was exactly that you did and, and what do you think it was that General Powell saw in a, in a young woman, 30 years old, um, uh, that, that made you right for this role? Yeah, so during the time, you know, so we cybersecurity has been around for a long time, just a different name, different era. But when you think of safeguarding, you know, um, 
your, you know, safeguarding military secrets, military um, intellectual property, the government intellectual property, you know, it's been around for a long time, how we, you know, handle uh, classified information, who needs to know, et cetera, the protocols, you know, putting those systems in place. So that's been around for a long time. Um, you know, but but also too, you have you know people forget about espionage. You know, internal um, folks selling secrets to the to other foreign governments or or our adversaries. And and I think um, you know during that time, you know uh, you know as you as as the military has gone through lots of changes in terms of you know upgrading legacy systems. It's easy at that time. It was easier for people to take information and. You know, store information in places and 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 sell information to our to foreign governments. So so standing up a, a joint organization was what was asked to do. Like we we're gonna um you have you know when you have militaries that don't share information and as you can see even today organizations are faced with you know sharing information across domains. And so one of the issues was um, how do we alert the Air Force or the Navy the Marines of of, of you know potential breach or espionage. And so standing up that organization was really about the opportunity to bring many agencies under one umbrella so that we could help uh, great military intelligence in order to be proactive versus reactive uh, to uh, potential breaches in, in, in our system. And so, um, you know, it was 2,500 people up for that job. And, you know, I thought I, for damn sure, thought I was the least qualified. And, um, and you know, and so going through the process, um, I learned a lot about myself and I also learned of what great leaders look for in other potential great leaders. Because as I got through the process, I was told, you know, do you know why you're here? And uh, all the way, you know, from the general, do you know why you're here? And I said, well, you know, because I am a great resume and the answer was no. I, said, well, I am a great leader and the answer is no. And, I, and he said, he said, I'll tell you why you've made it this far. He says, I'm not looking for somebody who's technically proficient. I'm not looking for someone who checks all the box. I'm looking for someone who has the greatest potential to lead. And that forever was 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 a moment in the military for me to have someone like him say, you know, you have the greatest potential to lead. And because a lot of times we can get caught up with the bios, the resumes, and we can say they don't check the box and we miss a great opportunity to see what great potential someone has as a leader and to lead something. And so for me, um, you know, getting that opportunity to do that and stand up an organization, I learned a lot for me, even as a CEO today, is that don't always look for the best resume. Don't always check the boxes. Look for the person who has the greatest potential. And so for me, it was just a, an incredible lesson about who I was becoming as a leader and who I wanted to be and how I wanted to make others feel in a leadership position. Wow, that is a fantastic story. Um, uh, and kudos to General Powell for seeing that in you. Certainly that falling in love with a resume is one of the biggest hiring mistakes that um, CEOs make uh, you know, across the board. But when you hire, uh, and you are presumably following uh, the general's advice in looking for potential to lead, what exactly does that translate to? How do you, how do you perceive that in somebody standing in front of you? So uh, oftentimes uh, for me as a leader, you know, you know when I when I think about a lot of the leadership qualities that I look for 
and a leader and, and the things that I want to be as a leader, you know, I want to obviously lead by example. But, you know, when I think about uh, the difference between a good leader and a great leader, um, you know, they're, they're, they're very different. And, and, I, and, and in the military, we used to say, you know, he's a good leader. Oh, he's a great leader. And, and we could tell we knew the difference uh, between the two. So when you think about a good leader tells you what they can do, but a great leader makes you understand what you can do. Right. And when you think about a good leader is, is sort of like a magnet uh, in terms of the personality, you know, they, they people want to follow people who want to be around a great leader. Obviously, Colin Powell was a great leader. And so he, you know, he looked at, you know, he wanted to breed great leaders and that's what it was all about. So he empowered all the, the good leaders to be great leaders and saying, you know, here's what you have the capabilities to do. And I think even today, as I look at a lot of the younger leaders in, the, in, 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 in especially in this country and in my field, you know, I want to empower them to look at their greatness and what does it take to be a good, great leader and and what you know what does it take to be a good leader? And some people are okay with just being good, but I think if you really show a, a leader their potential and you give them opportunities and you give them resources and you and you can make those connection points, you're breeding great leaders, and I really believe that. Uh, after a couple of decades, you eventually left the army. Uh, not, I assume, especially well-funded senior non-commissioned officer, and you started Extreme Solutions. Did you have a sense that cybersecurity was going to be a hot field? I did, because you know when I was in the military, um, cyber attacks had just was really kind of on the rise. Corporations was really struggling with this problem, and. If you think about the military, I came out of the military where we were really um, safeguarding information. Um, we had very complicated legacy systems that needed to be protected. And so we were working on lots of emerging technology. So I, I almost felt like at the time, military was about five years ahead of where private sector was. So I, you know, my thought process when I left the military is I'm going to take all of that what I've learned and build uh, the capabilities for the future uh, for corporations. And so when I got out of the military, I was just really shocked as I started to go to different corporations and start talking about the cyber capabilities that they did, that they could build. They were they I felt like I was speaking a foreign language to both of them because the military was so far advanced. And so I knew that I could build a company and I could do uh, build a great company based off of a really where I saw the future going for cyber. That first customer is always the toughest one to get. How did you get your first customer for Extreme Solutions? <laughs> that, that's a really funny story. I actually um, one day came home and I was real, realizing that, hey, you're going to be retired in about 60 days. So I got a board out and I just got this vision board. I was big. I really believe in vision boards. You got to see it before you can believe it. And so I got out a vision board and I put down you know, who, who would be your ideal customers. And I put AT&T and I put all these different customers on the board. And I said, who would be your ideal team if you had to build a team and where would you want to be? So I did all that. I said, OK, well, how much money do you want to make? How do you want to scale this company? So I put all this on a vision board. And then once I was done, I said, damn, now I got to go really got to go to work. I got to build this damn thing. So I I actually got dressed up one day, went to AT&T building downtown Atlanta, walked in and said, hey, I'm here to see your procurement director. 
And they're like, well, do you have an appointment? I was like, no, I don't have an appointment, but they want to see me and tell them that I'm only going to be here 45 minutes. And if they're not here in 45 minutes, I'm probably not going to meet with them in the future. So the, the, the person just laughed and they said, okay, well, let me see if, if they'll come down. So then they said, what's your name again? I told them my name. And then about 15 minutes later, the person who was over procurement came down and she said, did you have an appointment with us? I said, no, but you need to get your cyber folks, anybody who's running security, they're going to want to hear the solutions that I'm here to bring to the table today. So she said, did you, and you don't, who are you here to meet with? I said, I'm here to meet with your procurement. So she goes up, she gets the guy who's running this uh, research and development project for security. He comes down and he starts to hear a little bit of what I was talking about. And he says, do you have about 15 minutes? You can come up and talk to my team. I go upstairs, I talk to the team and he says, how many cyber folks can you get with the same capabilities that you have? We have a project and we definitely need the resources and the expertise. And that's, and, and literally I left there, got on the elevator and realized that I had nobody and I had literally 20 days to find the resources to help them build out these cyber capabilities. And that's how I got my first start was it was just me walking into a building and had no clue to who was going to come down or who was going to fall for it. That is such a great entrepreneurial story. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> you are part of a great tradition, Phyllis. I love it. <laughs> now, and, and, and to be honest with you, to this day, uh, AT&T, as a result of that, end up doing a program for veterans uh, because they realized a lot of veterans was transitioning out of the military with in incredible capabilities, uh, but who had a hard time translating that into how it could work in the private sector. And so I introduced that called Operation Hand Salute to them. Well, um, like we said at the beginning, you are a woman on a mission. Um, and the mission includes vets. It, it definitely also includes women and women entrepreneurs. Um, there's Shoulder Up, which we'll, we'll talk about in a second. Um, the, the leadership and many of the board members of your two SPACs are women. Um, where did this mission, especially to elevate women, come to you? Did it, was it something you, you always carried with you? Was it something that, that you observed as a woman in business or in the army? Just sort of what, what inspires you? Well, you know, what inspired me, when you look across most industries where, uh, whether it's finance, whether it's tech, whether it's, you know, you know, uh, the STEM, STEM uh, industry, you, 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 you tend to find, you know, a, a very low number of women in those, those industries. And sometimes there's a isolation that comes with being the only and, and, you know, and being the, you know, the, the only one in the class, the only one at this. And some, sometimes there can be a bit of isolation. And so for me, I, I went through the military and, you know, I've been the only woman in the room and I've been the only African-American in the room. You, you, at some point in your life, you're going to be the only something. And I believe that you, it is what you do with that moment and how you leverage the opportunity. I, I, I often used to say to women in the military, you know, don't get caught up with the politics, but find partnerships. Those will take you further than the politics. And so if you, if you, if you think about and sh what showed her up, it was really uh, built, um, bringing the framework of, you know, how do we leverage? Because a lot of times, um, you know, if, if women can't, we're working in silos a lot of times, then we all have one common goal of things that we want to achieve. But then if we don't understand how to shoulder up and come together and work together so that we can achieve that thing, 
that whatever that is, uh, uh, we miss a great opportunity. And so that was really how I got into understanding. I was hearing women in the tech industry talk about, you know, not enough women, not the op- work, they were not getting the opportunity, um, you know, leading projects, you know, getting on board seats. Um, you know, I, I heard it all and I kept thinking about this in a way to say, what if you had, and it, this came from Viola Davis and I meeting when we first met, and she was talking about in her industry in Hollywood. And I said, wow, that sounds like tech, the same problems. And I, and I said, what if we could build something to where we could leverage that? Because sometimes we believe that you can have the deepest pockets, meaning the biggest checkbook in the room, but if you, but if nobody hears you, you know, or, or know what you can do with all that, then it means nothing. And sometimes you can have the biggest mouth in the room, but no one can hear you because you, you, you don't have the money to back it up. But what if you had the economics means and you had the social impact and you put the two together, then that's where you can create real change. And so the framework of shoulder up is using your economic power and your social impact influence to and bringing that together with someone to create change in the lives of other women. And so, uh, so really that's how we, what that was really about. And, and it's applicable to every industry of, of how do you leverage, you know, when you look at the lack of board seats and opportunities are there, I always tell women, it's not okay for you to be the only woman on the board, be an advocate for others and get them to understand why having a very diverse board and, and, and the benefits to that and, and, you know, and being open and to talk about those things openly to other board members and explaining that. So, so that's really where that whole concept comes from. Phyllis, you're definitely a, a woman with a mission uh, to elevate women. Where did that come from? Was it something that you realized was needed to be fixed when you be got into business? Was it something you had felt all along or something you saw in the army? Where did that sense of mission come from? Uh, you know, I think it's a, a combination of everything that you said, the military, my family, you know, growing up with seven girls. But I think most importantly, when I left the military and I saw this in the military, um, you know, uh, women needed the opportunity to believe that they could rise to the ranks of uh, where other women were and, and being an advocate early on and in the room, you know, you know, pr- helping women get promoted that deserve to be there. And then when I went into business, as I looked into the, you know, tech sector and I didn't see a lot of, you know, most of the, the companies were, you know, obviously led by a lot of men but encouraging women to start businesses that had strong technical capabilities. And then, you know, as I looked into the financial industry, it was the same thing. And and so if you're not sitting in the room, you don't have an advocate sitting at that table, you look at only 12% of VC funds have actually women decision makers. who So they're deciding who's gonna get funded and who's not. So if you think of the number of startups um, that are out there, uh, only 2.3% of those women as of 2020 2.3% were getting funded and that's a very low number. And so, and, and, and so if you, in my, in our mindset is what shoulder up, we think of it this way. If women would use their economic power and their social impact and leverage that together, that's where you're going to create real change in industries and around the world. And so think of this in this way. Um, we look at um, women have capital. Those of us that have the capital, we want to deploy that capital to somewhere where we, ha- where there's an alignment with our own belief system. So if, if I have the capital and I don't have access to the opportunity, 
you know, a lot of times it's, it's just really about the access. So people say, well, you know, women investors, you have very few women investors who have the capital, but may not have the financial literacy to understand how the whole investment process work. And so if you're on the back end trying to get funded and you really don't understand the process and you really don't have the right advisors on your team early enough to coach you through that process, you don't get funded. And so by the time you get 10 years in business, you're still bootstrapping this thing together. And you and, and that's why you see lack of women going public. 22 women had gone public when I had gone went public with the SPAC. I was number 23, the first woman of color on any exchange, NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange. And people say, how can that be with thousands of companies that have gone public? How can only 23 women have gone public? Well, because I, it's like lack of access to capital. And so I believe that shoulder up really brings this concept that let's leverage everything that we have, even if we have to use group economics to do it, because you're typically not going to get a, a woman to go out and write a $10 million check into another company. So usually they, if they don't have that amount of capital, you have to use the group economics. And how we started it with Shoulder Up Ventures was that we wanted to get in together on deals. We, you, we all came together and said, listen, if the minimum check size is $5 million, let's all come together and we can write that one check with $5 million with all of us. And so that's how we started getting into deals, using the group economics model. And, and again, that goes back to leveraging. Someone has access to the opportunity, but don't have the right amount of capital. And then if you leverage that with the women that have capital, then you can create change. Okay, good. So that kind of syndication is still a far cry from where you are now with SPACs, um, which, as we said earlier, is sort of the latest financial darling on Wall Street. And just for people who might not know, a, a SPAC, a special purpose acquisition company, is a company that goes public and raises money for the sole purpose of acquiring another company or other companies. What was it that appealed to you about that model? Well, so Eric, I started getting SPACs with my own company, Extreme Solutions, and SPACs started to uh, come and they were pitching the SPAC. And here, here was a couple of things that I, I saw during that pitch. I probably went through about eight different company uh, SPACs coming to me uh, interested in me going public uh, via their vehicle. And one of the things I saw, uh, first of all, uh, no one, the, the folks that were pitching did not understand the industry. So if you don't have a great understanding of the industry, how can you help me scale in a public market? That was the first thing. The second thing that I saw is that there were no women in any of these SPACs, none. Out of all the SPACs that I talked to, they had no women on the management team, no none on the board or the advisory, they were all males. And so, uh, and so there was another, uh, there was another issue. And the other thing was, is that understanding, um, the, the economics of how a SPAC work, um, most of them, uh, would tell you their side of how the economics work, but assume that you didn't understand the, how it was economically going to be beneficial or not beneficial to you. And so after I went through that process, I reached out to a friend of mine and, and I said, you know, this SPAC is very, vehicle is very interesting. And, and I'm curious as to how many women are actually understand this or have been through this process or even know that this exists. And as we started to do research around this, we realized there was only Betsy Cohen was the only one, uh, only woman that was leading SPACs, where she ended up being our SPAC sponsor, the first SPAC, she was our SPAC sponsor. 
But uh, so so really, that's how SPACs came to me was because I had been pursued by SPACs. I decided instead of going with someone, I would go learn and how a SPAC works and then do a SPAC myself, along with the expertise of other women who had the expertise to lead a SPAC. So you and uh, Isabel Friedheim uh, launched a SPAC that went public in March, uh, Athena Technology Acquisitions Corp. And then in July made your first acquisition for Athena, um, Heliogen, a, a solar energy company. What appealed to you about that, about that company that you acquired? Yeah, so, the, so, we, so we, um, when we first went on our target search, and on our top, we had 25 companies that made our top 25, and there were very strict criteria that we had. Uh, our SPAC, first, uh, before I say that, our SPAC had the expertise that spans across industry. We had women that came out of private equity, venture capitalists. We had um, investment bankers. We had technologists. We had women that had um, CFO experience. Uh, we had operators, women who were running companies in the five, uh, $5 billion. We had women that were running companies in the seven billion. We had the first SEC commissioner was on the board. So so we had, a uh, our SPAC was very diverse, but it was also, it had a high level of expertise and the management team had a lot of experience. And so what we were looking for in a company, we were looking for a company that aligned with those with those values that the SPAC had. We wanted to make sure that, that the company had a diversity and inclusion plan, that they also too had, um, technology that was disruptive, but also scalable in a market and that they met the public ready assessment that we were doing. We had a sort of a red flag assessment. And so Hilogen checked all of those boxes. And I remember the first time we got on the call with Bill Gross, the, the, the founder, um, all of us got off the call and was just like, wow, what did we just hear? Technology, very disruptive, very innovative solution. Also, um, he had a great team. Uh, he was a visionary, but also a great leader. And then we actually went out and did a site visit. And once we went out, we, uh, we wanted to assess the culture of the company. Um, all of us who had ran companies, have companies, were sitting in that same position. We understood um, what it takes in terms of when a company goes public. And, you know, what does the culture look like? What does it feel like? You know, talking to all the management team. Did they have a really strong management team? And, and really, was this a company that could scale? And so... This was a no-brainer once we went through all of our due diligence and we brought in third-party due diligence firms to help assess the company, and we did that. And so we felt like um, this was this was a company that we saw doing a business combination together uh, was was the right thing for the shareholders, but mo most important for the investors. Okay, and and the company just to just for people who aren't familiar, uses artificial intelligence to concentrate solar power and create energy that way. Um, Absolutely. The, um, the new, now the one thing about the company is it's, it is fairly early stage. It has $8 million in revenue as of its last reporting. And the, at the acquisition price, it was valued at a, a total of $2 billion. It seems very rich. But how, so how do you justify that value? Yeah, well, we, we, we looked at it. Um, this company has, um, has done partnerships with um, um, several, you know, large solar companies. Uh, and if you, uh, a, a lot of what's been in, in the news lately, um, it's, you know, they've done partnerships with Woodside Energy. They also have uh, had a um, really big deal 
um, if you but Bloomberg is um, that just came out. And so uh, so when you look at their business model, um, they they have already contracted uh, to do um, build these uh, these uh, energy towers across around the world, and they've already have contracts. And so it's a matter of, of really scaling this, uh, you know, scaling the the production out to be able to do it. And we believe that they can do it. And we believe that the numbers that they have in terms of the com committed contracts, and these are not just MO, you know, memorandums. These are actual contracts that they already have uh, scaled to build out 20 of them in, by 2024. And so the numbers, and, and, and you know, some say we were a little conservative. Um, I think that it was fair uh, based off of uh, the fact that um, we have to build the first tower. They have a tower now. But we, we certainly still need to do this in real time. And that's going to be happening in, in uh, early uh, next year. Uh, the, the latest, the newest PAC, um, the one that just filed, I, the S1 that I read today was just two days old. It's called Shoulder Up, and uh, which reflects back at, at your nonprofit. So tie the mission of, of your SPAC back to the, the Shoulder Up mission that you just explained so eloquently. Yeah. So the so the the news news the news back is really um, shoulder up is a you know office, we're looking for a technology company. My background is in cyber, as you see in the S one. There are some you know uh, household names in cyber that's on the board and, and involved with the SPAC. and um, and and we're tying this this mission in. We've got a lot of um, what we believe, uh, as you know, this was not it's not all womenly at this time. Um, we have. Um, uh, brought a, a, a few of the guys are on the board, with, you know, cyber background. But really, it, it, it is about um, shouldering up with those companies out there this time to solve a, a global problem, which we all understand is cyber attacks. Or since the pandemic, we've had, you know, up we're about seven thousand percent increase in cyber attacks. Um, we understand that this problem is going to get worse, and so we believe that there are companies out there that this vehicle would be perfect for. Uh, in, uh, in, in you know cyber AI, this per this vehicle is going to be perfect for uh, that need the uh, public capital in order to expand and grow and and really solve some very complicated problems that we are seeing in cyber. So we're excited about this uh, shoulder up, and we hope that uh, each spec that we have, we really want to have a, a sense of awareness around this back and. And, and I would tell you this, uh, if you look at the board, we have a lot of veterans that are in this back uh, who, who come from the military. And, you know, um, Benson Stewart uh, ran the Cyber uh, Center of Excellence out of the Pentagon. Uh, we have Sean Henry, who was the director of cybersecurity for the FBI. And now he's at with CrowdStrike as a, as a principal there. And so we believe that uh, we really understand this landscape of the technology component in cyber. And, and, and also, too, uh, when we talk about the awareness, one of the things that most of us wanted to be committed to is talking about, you know, our veterans that are leaving the military and the transitioning. And a lot of these guys have incredible skill sets. So we really hope to partner with a company out there that has initiative around hiring veterans. And so um, that's what we're going to be looking for and, and is certainly pushing that as an initiative to anybody that despacks with us. Okay. Still a woman on a mission. Thank you for being with us today, Phyllis. Phyllis Newhouse is the CEO of Extreme Solutions and the CEO of uh, Just Filed SPAC called Shoulder Up. Phyllis, thanks. Thanks for being here.
Thank you. Thank you for having me. That's all for this episode of The Human Factor. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen so you don't miss the next episode. The Human Factor is produced by Joshua Christensen with help from Blake Odo. 